The preaching text is in page 4 in your bulletins, if you could turn there. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse, starting in verse 23. I'll read for you guys. All right. Verse 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is the word of God. Um, so this is the new year, and uh, this time, for many of us, we make uh, New Year's resolutions, right? And uh, it seems like year after year, we make uh, the exact same resolutions, because year after year, uh, we fail in those resolutions, right? And we find ourselves helpless before our old habits and our besetting sins, Uh, We so very much want to control our tongues, uh, our temper, our time. We want to rein in our selfish impulses, our sinful desires and uh, emotions and obsessions. Um, But rather than controlling them, we find that uh, we're controlled by them, unable to live a life of discipline and beauty and uh, goodness, a life pleasing to God. And so uh, I think what that shows us is that all of us, whether we're Christians or non-Christians, all of us struggle with self-control. All of us long for self-restraint. And uh, Paul in our passage today shows us the secret of self-control. And the secret of self-control is found in this very simple but incredibly profound metaphor of a race. And actually, Paul is evoking an image that would have been incredibly familiar to the Corinthian Christians because... Um, Paul is drawing from the world of athletics. And uh, he actually has in mind uh, the Olympics. Uh, Some of you may not know that the Greeks invented the Olympics, right? And um, he has in mind the Olympics, which was was held not too far from the city of Corinth, right? Which is the city he's writing to. And actually, in the city of Corinth, uh, every two years was held something called the Isthmian Games, which was uh, a very close second to the Olympics in terms of importance. And in verse 24... When Paul uses that word race, he's actually using a very specific and almost technical term, uh, which is the Greek word stadion, right, which is where we get our word stadium, right? And he's referring to the most important event in the Olympics, which was a foot race, which was about the length of our modern day 200 meter dash, right? And so when Paul is talking about the race, that's what he has in mind. He's He's thinking about the ancient version of the 200 meter dash. And Paul says the Christian life is like this race. What is Paul teaching us? What is Paul trying to say to us? And we learn three things. And so here's my outline. We learn that self-control, and by the way, in the bulletins it says self-denial. Uh, I don't know what was going on in my head, but when I was typing up the bulletin, I had some sort of brain fart, and then I wrote self-denial. Uh, very closely related, right? But I meant to write self-control, so... You know, think self-control. Self-control, point number one, self-control is agony. Point number two, 
self-control comes from uh, focusing on the prize. And then finally, we're going to see the ultimate runner. Who is the ultimate runner? All right, so let's start. Point number one, self-control is agony. And uh, I say this because of the word Paul uses in verse 25. He says in verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. And that word athlete uh, in the Greek literally means the one who struggles, right? That's the way uh, the Greeks describe an athlete, the one who struggles. And the Greek word for struggle is the word agonizomai. And it's where we get the word agony. And the idea here is that when an athlete competes for and trains for a race, he's in absolute agony, right? He's just suffering. It's full of pain and, 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 and struggle. And Paul is trying to show us here that the Christian life is a life of self-inflicted agony and pain. Now, why is that? This is very important, right? This is the key to understanding what Paul is trying to say. The Christian life is agony because the Christian life is fighting and resisting sin. Here's the question. Why do we sin? Why do we sin? We sin because we love to sin. We sin because it promises us pleasure and, and, and happiness, right? You know, no one's forcing us to sin. No one's like putting a gun to our head and we're like, no, no, I don't want to sin. And then, oh, I sinned. No, we sin because we want to sin, right? Because it promises us pleasure and happiness. And so, for example, why do we lie? In every instance, the reason why we lie is because we believe that telling the truth is too painful. It's too uncomfortable. And if we lie, it will just be easier for us and it will be more pleasant. And this is true for every sin that we do, even those things which seems on the surface to make us more miserable. For example, why do we nurse a grudge? You know, why do we refuse to forgive people? And when we do that, when we hold on to our anger, actually it makes us quite miserable, right? It makes us very unhappy. But if you think about it, there's a perverse kind of pleasure, right, in thinking about bad things happening to the other person, right? And sort of imagining uh, the other person getting their comeuppance. And so even in those areas where it seems like it's making us miserable, we do the sin because we want it, because it makes us happy. And therefore, to fight sin, to resist sin, is agony. It's to deny ourselves the pleasures of sin. And Paul gets this across, I think, quite vividly with this illustration of a race. Now, uh, some of you may be surprised to learn that in high school, uh, I ran cross-country and track. And uh, so I feel like, and I can say this you know, with some modesty, but I feel like I really know what Paul is talking about when he says that the race is agony. Um, now, I want to confess to you right up front that I was not much of an athlete. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, uh, I remember when I graduated from junior high up to uh, high school, right, uh, I received a packet in the mail. And uh, you're supposed to choose a sport that you're going to join in high school, right? And I remember going through the list, and it said, like, football, basketball, baseball. And I remember looking at this list, and I was like, dude, I can't do any of these sports, right? You know, these are, I mean, I'm going to embarrass myself if I, try to, if I try out for these teams. And so I was, like, reading through the list, feeling kind of depressed, until I got to uh, cross-country and track. And I had this impression that cross-country and track required no skill, right? 
basically, it's like running, right? Like, I know how to run, right? It's like running in a circle, right? Um, I thought, no problem. Uh, but man, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Um, for those of you who have never run you know, as a sport, as competitively, you know what running is? Running is self-inflicted pain. You know, running is basically strapping yourself onto a torture machine, and the person who lasts the longest wins, right? I remember my coach would make us run uh, in these hills, and mind you, I uh, went to a high school called Crescenta Valley High School, and uh, it was called that because we were surrounded by these menacing steep hills, and my coach would make us go running up and down, up and down for hours uh, in the blazing sun, in the freezing rain. It really didn't matter what the weather was. And we would do these death drills. And, you know, why did the coach make us do this? Was he some kind of masochist, you know? Did he just enjoy hearing little teenage kids scream in pain? And actually, I was pretty convinced that that was his real motivation. Um, no! The coach did this because he was training us, he was preparing us for the race, to win the race, right? Because without strict training and all the pain and suffering that it entails, you cannot win the race. You have to approach the race with absolute determination. You have to exercise, as Paul says, self-control. And I think Paul conveys this really powerfully uh, when he uses the word discipline in verse 27. Now, that word discipline, when I read it, you know, it seems kind of soft and, and benign, but uh, it's actually a really violent word. Um, and let me read it to you. Uh, actually, he changes the metaphor a little bit in, in verse 26. So let me back up and read verse 26, starting in the middle. He says, I do not box as one beating the air. Right? So he's talking about boxing. He's, he's actually still staying in the athletic metaphor. Um, so he says, I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control. Now, that word discipline is the Greek word hupopiazo. And it is a boxing term, right? And what it means is you, uh, you beat on your opponent so much that he submits to you, right? It's, so you basically enter the boxing ring and you so pummel and pound your opponent that he submits. It's an incredibly violent term, hupo piazo, and Paul uses that word to describe the Christian life. What is Paul trying to say to us? Paul is trying to tell us that in the pursuit of the goal to get the prize, we need to use any measure necessary. And it kind of reminds me of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount when he says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. Hupo piazza, use any means necessary. And as a runner, what that means is that all of your life has to be completely disciplined. You have to exercise self-control in all things. And so that means as a runner, you can't stay up all night partying, right? You have to go to bed early. You have to wake up early. I remember my coach would tell us, would tell the team, he said, I want you guys to wake up one or two hours early before school starts to go running and get in that you know, extra training. I remember thinking, are you crazy? You know, I can barely wake up in time for first period. But there were actually people on the team, I kid you not, who woke up at 5 a.m. in the morning to go running for two hours before school started. I mean, these were intense people. These were people gunning for you know, varsity. It means that if you're a runner, it means that 
You know, you have to endure long hours of grueling training, you know, so that when your body is screaming for relief, you press on. It means that you have to watch what you eat, right? You have to eat healthy. You can't eat junk food. I remember there was this one race um, about 15 minutes before uh, my event was up. Um, I was starving. I was starving, right? And, you know, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to eat a very healthy, you know, uh, lunch full of carbohydrates so you can kind of load up on energy. And, uh, but I was very bad. <laughs> I kind of ate sloppily and, you know, I kind of entered the whole race in a kind of cavalier attitude. And 15 minutes before the race started, I was starving. So what I did was not very bright. I went back into the school building and I went to the vending machine and I got a Snickers bar. <laughs> And I scarfed the Snickers bar down uh, like 10 minutes before my race started. And I remember uh, in my event, I was like, I experienced the worst stomach cramps I've ever experienced. And I was running uh, like horizontally, right? I was like just gripping my stomach all the way through. And uh, of course, I, I lost. But not only did I lose, I lost by several minutes, which is really bad in track. And uh, I remember my coach came up to me. And he said to me, Michael, what is going on? And I told him the story about the Snickers bar. And he was so angry. He was so upset, and rightly so. Because I didn't exercise self-control. And I did something that not only made me lose, but it actually hurt the team standings. And so you have to be absolutely disciplined in every area every area of your life if you want to win because, listen, because it's not enough to simply enter the race. And this is what, uh, what Paul means when he says in verse 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners compete but only one receives the prize so run that you may obtain it. And this was very true uh, in the Olympics, in, in the Greek games, uh, they didn't award a medal for first, second, third. They only gave the prize to first place and all the other uh, competitors lost the race. And what that means is that if you wanted to win, you had to compete with all of your might, all of, all of your determination, because there was no such thing as a participation trophy. You know? By the way, that was the only tro athletic trophies I ever had. You know? <laughs> participation trophies. There is, no there is no participation trophy in the Olympics, in the Greek Olympics. And so therefore, you need to exercise complete self-control and I know this because uh, I was not that kind of athlete, you know? I say this with shame, but I was a really bad, crappy athlete. Uh, I remember every time I stood at the starting line, uh, I really only had two goals in mind. Uh, goal number one, minimize the pain. Uh, goal number two, uh, don't embarrass yourself too badly. And so I remember every race, I would sort of run at a kind of leisurely pace, but kind of brisk. And I was basically, as I was running, I was basically just waiting for the race to be over, you know? And it, may, it will surprise none of you that in the two years that I was in cross-country and track, I never won a race. You know, I never even came close. I was always in the bottom half of the pack. What's my point? Let's apply this. Is it not the case that for so many of us, we run the Christian life in this way, right? We're not all out passionate for the glory of God. We don't live a life pleasing to Him, a life of discipline and joy, a life of self-denial to the temptations that surround us, but rather we're running this race 
kind of muddling through. We're just shuffling our feet, going through the motions, waiting for the race to be over. And, and instead of focusing on the prize, we only have two goals really in mind, which is to minimize our suffering and to not look too bad in the process. And what Paul is saying in this metaphor is that when you run the Christian life like that, it's like running aimlessly without the goal in mind. It's like, to switch the metaphor slightly, it's like entering the boxing match. And instead of focusing all of your energy and all of your might on heading your opponent, which is sin, you're just sort of like lamely swinging your arms and you're only like batting the air. I mean, imagine that you are set to fight in a boxing match with Manny Pacquiao, you know, the, you know a world-class boxing champion. And in preparation, you blow off all your training sessions. You just kind of like casually saunter into the ring. And what would you say of, to, uh, to that person? You would say, you are a fool. And very quickly, that person will find himself out cold on the mat, wondering what happened to him. And so what's the point? The point is this, that in the Christian life, you cannot just leisurely jog through the park, but the Christian life is a race. It's a race, and you can only win the prize with intensity of commitment and determination. All right, so that's the first point. If that's the case, how can we run the race with endurance? Where do we find this self-control that we need? You know, what's the secret? And this leads me to my second point. Self-control comes from focusing on the prize. Now, if you look at Paul's uh, illustration, where does the athlete get the self-control to endure all the agonies of the race? The answer is brilliantly simple, right? It's because of the prize. And what that tells us is that self-control is not a matter of mere willpower. It's not like commanding yourself, stop doing what you want to do. Right? It's not mere willpower, but it's the desire for the prize. It's being filled with a greater and higher desire. I mean, think about it, right? The athlete, of course, he wants to quit. He wants to stop and lie down and take a nap. But why does he press on? Because of his desire for the prize. It's for a higher and greater prize. And therefore, the only way that you can endure and press on is if you are so captivated and so enraptured by the beauty and glory and majesty of the prize. And I think the best example of this is the story of Jacob. Uh, we actually looked at the story of Jacob two months ago, right? And uh, in the story of Jacob, he leaves his home and he goes to visit his uncle Laban, right? And the first person that he sees, do you guys remember, is Rachel. Beautiful, ravishingly gorgeous Rachel. And he immediately falls in love. He's just completely smitten. And he says to Laban, what must I do to marry Rachel? And Laban says... You must work for me for seven years. I want you to tend my flocks for seven years and then you can have her. And so, Rate, uh, so uh, Jacob works seven long, grueling years. And I want to uh, read to you the verse that talks about this because it's really amazing and it's key. Listen, this is what uh, Genesis says. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. I find that to be such an incredible statement because I know what it's like to work at a job that you just absolutely hate, you know? 
It's just soul-sucking and, and, and cr- just drudgery. Every morning you wake up, you have this deep guttural groan. I don't want to go to work. And Jacob had such a job. And yet, it says, it was like nothing to him. The seven years were like nothing because of the love he had for Rachel. So that every day on the job, he dreamt of Rachel. Every day he meditated on the joy and the beauty of Rachel. And therefore, for Jacob, he had no problem with self-control. Every day he had menial, you know, just tiresome tasks to do, but it was no problem. He had no problem getting to work, no problem waking up because of the prize. You see, the prize makes all the difference. The prize is the key to self-control. And uh, Tim Keller once gave a great illustration of this. He said, imagine that there's two people hired for a job. And this job, think of the most tedious, menial, mind-numbing job you can imagine, right? You know, some of you are saying, that's my job. Um, But, you know, worse than that, you know, just absolute pain, grief, agony. Think of the worst job on earth. And these two people are hired to work at it for one month. And the first person is paid minimum wage. And the second person is going to be paid $1 million at the end of that month. Now, both of these two people arrive at work. And the first person just hates every moment of it. You know, every day he's complaining. Every day he's dragging his feet. He arrives at work late all the time. He's always complaining until finally one day he says, I can't take it anymore. I quit. The second person arrives at work. And this person has a song in his heart. He's tapping his toes. You know, he has no problem arriving at work. He he comes early every day and stays late. Everything he does is with excellence. And he just has a smile on his face through the whole month. What's the difference between these two people? Is it that the second person had more willpower? Is it that the second person was just a stronger person? Of course not. It has to do with the prize, right? The key is the prize. The greater, the more excellent the prize, the more self-control you have. And now Paul says that, you know, the athletes, they do this for a perishable wreath. And that's actually true. Uh, In the Olympics, they didn't give you a gold medal, but they gave you this uh, laurel wreath. And uh, what they would do is they would get these olive branches and kind of twist it into a crown. I'm sure you've all seen it, right, in, in, in the ancient world. And uh, you would get this crown, and it was perishable because, you know, you maybe you put it on the shelf, and a couple of months later it would decompose and it would become dust. And, of course, the athletes, you know, were working for more than that crown. You know, they were working for glory or money or women or whatever it is that, you know, they were looking forward to. But that crown is a great picture, and I think Paul's so insightful because whatever it is that those athletes were going for would not last. And so Paul is saying, if these athletes are so willing to put in that much dedication and that much focus, I mean, have you ever met an athlete you know, who is really serious? They have incredible self-control, incredible de- determination, and if they're willing to do that for a crown that will not last, how much more we for a crown that will last forever. Forever. And now what is this eternal crown? What is this crown that will never perish? And actually it's not what you think. And uh, 
what's been enormously helpful to me uh, as I was studying this passage was uh, the notes in the ESV Study Bible. And uh, I just want to take this opportunity to kind of promote that book, you know. Uh, if you're reading the Bible and you really want to, like, have a great resource, buy that book, you know. So anyways, I was reading the notes, right? Great resource. And the notes help me to realize that Paul is not talking about his individual salvation. I know that's what it seems like. The prize that he's going for is heaven, Right? But it's not because there's two other places in the New Testament that Paul talks about an eternal crown. And those two, two places are 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, and then Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. And I'm going to read those two passages for you. So listen very carefully, okay? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'm going to kind of backtrack a little bit and read from verse 17 for the background. So listen, okay? Paul writes this. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart... We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Listen carefully now, verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Let me read to you Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. What was Paul's eternal crown? It was the Philippians and Thessalonian believers. And Paul actually says much the same thing in verse 23 in our passage. Uh, You have to understand that... um, all through 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he's going through this argument, right? And he's saying that as an apostle, he has all of these rights and all of these privileges, and yet he lays them aside. He, he doesn't appeal to them. Why? What's the goal? He says it in verse 23. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. And he's talking about the Corinthian believers, right? And that phrase, share with them, is actually one Greek word it's the Greek word uh, sug koinonia, and it's a compound word. And the word koinonia, some of you may know, is the word fellowship, right? And the word sug is a prefix which means together or with. And when you combine those two words together, what it means is fellow partaker or joint partner. And it was actually a word that you used in the business realm to describe your business partner. And so what does Paul mean when he says uh, sug koinonia? He's saying, I do all of it for the sake of the gospel so that I may be a joint partaker, a fellow uh, partner with you in enjoying the gospel. And what, is, and what is Paul trying to say? Here's the prize, right? Listen. The prize is this. Paul is saying, I do everything in my life. Every moment in my life is for this one all-encompassing goal that other people may share with me, may join with me in knowing the joy of Christ and the gospel. That's the goal. That's the imperishable prize. That's the thing that so animates Paul's heart and organizes everything in Paul's life. And some of you are saying, um, that's such a distant and unfamiliar reality. You know, that's the prize. And you're not moved. You know, your heart is not stirred. What's the motivation for you then? Well, that leads us to our third point. You know, how can we be moved? How can we be stirred by this prize? 
And there's another passage in the, New, in the New Testament that actually talks about the Christian life as a race, and that's Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. And so I want to read it to you, and uh, I think this is the key. This, this, this is the secret, right? Listen, verse 1. Since, uh, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and he's just been going through in Hebrews 11, all of these examples of the Old Testament where people loved God and trusted Him. He says, so because of all these examples, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And listen, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And if you actually read that in the, in the original Greek, it's the exact same words as you will find in our passage in 1 Corinthians 9. Right? So let us run the race with endurance that's set before us. All right, so how do we do this? Verse 2 Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What is the writer of Hebrews telling us? That Jesus is the ultimate runner. And that his race was the agonizing torture of the cross. And at any moment, Jesus could have stopped. At any moment, Jesus could have said, you know what, all of this pain and agony, it's just not worth it. But what made Jesus endure? A race that has never been asked of anyone to run. You know, what gave him such incredible self-control so that he laid aside, you know, every comfort and and joy and happiness that were rightfully his, that he enjoyed in abundance in heaven. What made him run the race? The writer of Hebrews tells us it was for a joy set before him. What was this joy? What was the one thing Jesus lacked in all the splendor of heaven? It was us. We were his joy. We were the Rachel of his life. You know, we were the apple of his eye. We were the delight of his soul. So that as he hung on the cross, he endured the agonies by meditating on the joy of having us, of rescuing us. And when we see Jesus enduring the race for us, we will want to endure the race for him. Let me say that again. When we see Jesus enduring the race for us, we will want to endure the race for him. That is the gospel. That's how the gospel works. That's what it means to live a gospel-driven life. And so this is the secret. We need to so meditate and so fill our hearts with the joy of knowing Christ. And when we have that, we're going to want to share it with others so that when you see your sin and all the pleasures and happiness it pretends to offer you, you will look at that sin and you will say, if that keeps me away from the far greater joy of knowing Christ, then I want nothing to do with that sin. And you will, you will hate your sin and you will revile your sin because it keeps you away from the joy of knowing Christ and having other people join in that joy. And that, and only that, will change your life and make you uh, turn away from your sins. I want to close uh, by, uh, by reading a passage from a book that was uh, very influential to me in college. Um, in college, I read a book uh, by John Piper called Desiring God, and the subtitle was Meditations of a Christian Hedonist. And that book was just so revolutionary for me because it was the first book 
where I finally caught a glimpse that the Christian life is not this drudgery of following laws and rules, but it's delighting and enjoying who God is. And, and I want to read to you this, this passage. Actually, John Piper quotes C.S. Lewis, um, who's kind of, I guess, the font of all wisdom. Um, he quotes C.S. Lewis's essay, The Weight of Glory. And I want, to, I want you to listen to what C.S. Lewis has to say, because I think it's so perceptive and it's so helpful. This is what he says. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. And then he adds this postscript, we are far too easily pleased. That's it. The reason why our lives are so weak and so tepid and so passionless is because we have so contented ourselves with the fleeting little pleasures that this life has to offer when there is infinite, eternal, surpassing joy awaiting us. But we forget and we ignore it. If only we will run the race set before us. The Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that uh, we would be so captivated and so, uh, so enraptured by this great prize that you set before us to enjoy you, to have others join us in the enjoyment of you. But Lord, we confess to you that um, for so many of us, that's really not the case. Uh, we're chasing after other joys. We're reveling in other pleasures. But Lord, make us see that it is so small and so minuscule compared. And it keeps us from the great joy of knowing you. Oh, Father, we pray you would make us serious athletes and make us run the race with self-control and discipline. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.